Good morning, Grace Bible Fellowship. It's good to be with you this morning, even if it's in this way. And uh, I wish that we could on this uh, Resurrection Sunday weekend that we could be together in person, uh, but uh, it has to be live stream again. I wish we could have the Lord's Supper together, and I'm longing for that day when again we'll be gathered together as a body. What I want to do this morning is I want to take you to a a passage in the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 this morning. It's it's a passage that reminds us of what Jesus did for us almost 2,000 years ago on this very day. Today, as you know, is Good Friday, it's the day that Jesus was crucified for us and for our salvation. And it's good for us to come back to this constantly, to remember the cost of our salvation and what Jesus accomplished. We should never tire of hearing the gospel. We should never lose our amazement at the reality of salvation, that God took on humanity to deliver us from his own wrath. What could be more significant than that? And so let's look at our text this morning. It's Ephesians chapter 5. We're just going to look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There are two commands in this passage that are, are based upon what has God, what God has done for us in Christ. We are to be imitator, imitators of God and we are to walk in love. Uh, a command to be and a command to do. We are to be imitators and to walk in love. And these two commandments are based on what God has done for us in our salvation. Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And God adopted us into His family as His beloved children. And because of of what God has done on our behalf, we are to live in certain ways. There's a proper response to salvation. There's an appropriate response to what God has done in our lives. We're called to follow God's example. We imitate God as His children, and we walk in love as Christ loved us. And so in the same way that God acted towards us, as God has acted towards us, so we are to reciprocate that action. And the two commands in our text are really one. The the specific way that we are called to imitate God is by walking in love. And the basis for these commands can be really seen as one thing as well, really as our salvation. We have adoption as God's children, and that's a really a result of the atonement and what Christ has accomplished in His sacrifice for our sins. And so two commands that really can be seen as one, and really two uh, bases for these commands, which also kind of come together in the whole aspect of our salvation. And I want to look at the two aspects of the text this morning, both the command and the foundation, uh, really under two headings. And we're going to really, what we're going to do, because it's Good Friday and because we really want to focus on what Jesus did for us today, we're going to look at this text backwards this morning. We're going to start at the end and kind of work our way to the front of the text. We're going to start with the foundation and then work our way to the commands. And so first, what we're going to see, if you're taking notes this morning, the first heading 
is what God has done. Just really simply, what what God has done. And we're going to spend, like I said, the, the bulk of our time here this morning as we think about what God has done. God has done some amazing things for us according to this text. In verse 1, again, we are beloved children. And in verse 2, Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're going to start with verse 2 because what Christ did in verse 2 is what makes verse 1 possible. And we could break what God has done according to this text into two, and we're going to do that. And so we're going to see when under the heading what God has done, we're going to have two sub-points. And the first one is atonement, and the second one is adoption. And so first, let's look at the atonement. The atonement is one of the rare theological terms that actually comes from and through the English language. And if I remember right, William Tyndale came up with this word when he was translating the the scriptures, when he was translating the the Bible into English, and uh, he needed a word that communicated what happened through the sacrifice. And he couldn't find a good word in English, and so he he came up with his own word. Uh, he was he was thinking, how can I describe what happens in the sacrifice when God is made at one with the sinner? You see, there was a a separation from God before the sacrifice, but through the offering, the worshiper and God were reconciled. They were made at one with each other. And so atonement is literally at one mint. And so when we talk about the atonement, we mean all that Jesus Christ accomplished by his life and death to bring us to God. The atonement includes not only Christ's death, but also His perfect life. In order to be made right with a holy God, we needed more than just forgiveness. Now, it kind of sounds weird to say that we needed more than just forgiveness, that forgiveness really is an amazing thing, but forgiveness itself wasn't enough. Forgiveness made us innocent. It removes our guilt, but in order to live with God's holy presence, we needed something positive. We needed righteousness. And so Jesus acted as our representative both in His life and in His death. By living a perfect life as our representative, Jesus fulfilled the law for us. Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law. He, By dying on the cross as our representative, Jesus paid the penalty that our sin deserved. And so by His perfect life, He represented us. And by His substitutionary death, He represented us. Jesus paid the penalty that our sin deserved. And so through His life, we receive righteousness. And through His death, we receive the forgiveness of sins. In His life, we typically think of His obedience. And in His death, we think of the suffering that He went through. Now, those two aspects really can't be separated. Jesus suffered in His obedience and He obeyed in His suffering. Scripture doesn't divide Christ's atonement, but it's helpful for us to think about both sides of Christ's work, especially of both sides and how they relate to us. Because on the one hand, we receive the righteousness of of God in Christ, and on the other hand, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. Theologians call the one side active obedience. Active obedience speaks of the righteousness that Christ 
merited for us by his obedience, by his life. Again, he fulfilled the law. He always obeyed his father. He never sinned. And so Christ earned for us a perfect record of human righteousness, and that record is counted as ours in him. If you are in Christ, God looks at you as though you had earned that perfect righteousness. God treats you as though you were his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And scripture calls this righteousness the righteousness of God because Christ's righteousness has a God-like quality to it. The righteousness of God is imputed to us by faith. It is counted as ours. Because we trust in God and come to Christ by faith, we are united to Christ. We are joined to Him. And so what is His becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours. That's the positive side of the atonement, which comes to us through what theologians again call Christ's active obedience. On the other side, theologians talk about Christ's passive obedience. And and they don't mean by that passive in the sense that Christ was passive in his suffering. It's not that Christ was passive at all, but passive there comes from the Latin and, and refers to suffering. Christ's passive obedience was the suffering that he bore to pay the infinite penalty for our sins. Christ's passive obedience refers to his passion. Passion is a, another word that comes to us through the Latin. And, uh, and the, the word, again, derived from the Latin. And you've probably heard of Christ's obedience or Christ's suffering referred to as the passion of Christ. And so Christ's passive obedience speaks of his passion, speaks of his suffering. Now again, Christ was active in his sufferings as he was in his life, but again, it's helpful for us to distinguish these two aspects. His passive obedience is the way that God could remain just and forgive our sins. Jesus suffered for our sins. And in all this, his active and his passive, uh, the, the life and death, the one word that summarizes all of what Christ did for us is obedience. Christ's obedience to his Father in both his life and his death is what secures our salvation. Christ obeyed in our place as a man. Another way to summarize that all that Christ did for us in his obedience is to say, as our text says, he loved us and he gave himself up for us. God so loved the world that he sent his Son, but God the Son himself also loved us. Our text tells us that he loved us and he gave himself for us. And so I want you to think this morning of the love of Jesus Christ. Think of the love of our Lord. Ephesians 3 and verse 19 talks about the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ is an unfathomable love. Ephesians 5.25 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so Christ's love is a cleansing love. It's a love that makes us holy. It's a love that sanctifies us, a love that sets us apart for God. 
Ephesians 5.29 tells us that Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. In 1 John 3.16, it says, By this we know, love, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so Christ's love is a defining love. It's the, the, by His love we know love, but through the way that He acts in love, we can come to understand love. He laid down His life for us. His love is an utterly unselfish love. Jesus said in John 15 and verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's, his life for his friends. The love of Christ, the, the love with which Christ loved us is the greatest love. There is no greater love than the love of Jesus Christ. And I want to just give you some reasons why the love of Christ is the greatest love. First, the love of Christ is the greatest love because of the distance between the one loved and the loved ones. If a man loves his friends, it's not really counted as such a wonder as when a man loves someone who cannot repay or as when a man loves his enemy or somebody who repays him with evil. Jesus said in Luke 16.32, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. You know, our love is often a selfish love. Our love, it, we often love expecting to be loved in return, expecting some kind of benefit in return, or we love those who will love us back. We love those who are close to us, but Jesus loved us when we were infinitely distanced from Him. We were sinners. We were opposed to Him and His ways. Think about this. Jesus, as God, had a perfect hatred for sin. Sin was against everything that Jesus stood for. Sin was contrary to all of who He was. His entire divine nature was infinitely revulsed by our sin. And that's exactly who we were. We were sinners. We were by nature children of wrath. Our nature was to sin. You know, it's one thing to love a friend, but to love an enemy is a greater love. And Christ loved us when we were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Colossians 1.21. He loved us while we were enemies, Romans 5.10. He loved us when we were ungodly, Romans 5. Romans 4, 5 talks about how God justifies the ungodly. We couldn't have been further away from one another, and yet Christ loved us. Another reason that Christ's love is the greatest love is because His love required the greatest sacrifice. We judge a gift based on the cost of that gift. The greater the cost, the greater the gift. And what did Christ's love cost Him? Well, first he had to leave the joys of heaven. The one who for all eternity had enjoyed perfect union and intimacy with God the Father, he left that communion to show love for us. He left the exalted worship of the heavenly host to condescend to us. 
He who once beheld the glory of the Father's splendor and experienced all the pleasure and joy of fellowship in the Trinity left that experience by adding a human nature to himself. In the words of 2 Corinthians 8-9, he became poor. The mystery of the incarnation is beyond what I can explain today or ever, but we know that in his earthly existence, Jesus missed some of what he enjoyed before in heaven. In John 17 and verse 5, as he was about to go back to his father, Jesus prayed, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so Jesus' love cost him the fullness of heavenly comfort and joy. And when we think of the cost of Christ's love, consider second that he came to earth as a man. The one who never suffered and could not suffer entered into human suffering. He had no place to lay his head. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. He was grieved. He suffered betrayal. He was rejected of men. The exalted God was humiliated. He was ignored. He was despised even. But beyond that, he also suffered the most horrendous death known to man, the death of crucifixion. He was crucified. He was whipped and struck and mocked and blasphemed. He was spit upon and beaten and ridiculed. He was oppressed and wrongly accused and nailed to a cross. He suffocated and bled and died. And even more than all that, he experienced as a man separation from God the Father. As God poured out the undiluted wrath of uh, of his, uh, of, of God's wrath came upon Christ, undiluted upon his own son. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. And this, this was the cost of his love. There was never a greater price paid for anything in all the universe. And so we see that Jesus' love is the greatest love because he traveled the greatest distance to love us. His love is the greatest love because He paid the highest cost. And thirdly, Jesus' love is the greatest love because it provides the greatest benefit. A good biblical definition of love is this. It's seeking the greatest good or the highest benefit for the one loved. Again, to, to love is to seek the greatest good or the highest benefit for the one loved. If I truly love someone, I do for them what would be for their greatest good. The love of Christ has done the greatest good for His people because He has opened the way for us to know God. No good could be as good as bringing us to God who is the source of all good. To know God and have fellowship with Him is the ultimate good for man. Nothing could be better. Christ has done the greatest good for us. We have received the ultimate gift and therefore Jesus' love is the greatest love. And His love is also a personal love. He loves us personally. Jesus said, or Paul said, sorry, Paul said that almost the same thing as we have in our text in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. 
Paul realized that the love of Christ was personal. He says, He loved me and He gave Himself for me. He lives in me. And it's no different for Paul than for us. If Christ has saved you, you can say too, He loved me and gave Himself for me. Back in our text, again, it says Christ loved us and gave Himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ gave Himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God. Offerings and sacrifices bring the Old Testament sacrificial system into view. Offerings and and sacrifices were always designed to point forward to Jesus Christ. Various animals were sacrificed and offered to God often to make atonement for sin. The innocent animal died in the place of the guilty worshiper. Jesus was crucified during the Passover, which which commemorated how God's judgment passed over the Israelites who had sprinkled the blood of a lamb on their doorposts the night before the Exodus. God's angel passed through all of Egypt that night in judgment, killing all the firstborn in every household, even of every animal in the field. And only those households who sprinkled blood over their doorposts, the blood of a sacrificed lamb, only those households were delivered from this judgment. According to 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover. And as our Passover sacrifice, Jesus died in our place. We deserve to die. We deserved God's judgment, but Jesus Christ died on our behalf. Our text says that the offering and the sacrifice was offered to God. Sacrifices and offerings were always made to God, and this reminds us that our sins were against God. Because our offenses were against God, Christ's offering needed to be made to God. God was angry, and justly so because of our sin. God was offended, and He needed, uh, in order for God to accept us, His wrath needed to be satisfied. For God to be just, and the justifier, for God to, to justify the ungodly, His wrath needed to be appeased. And the atonement did exactly that. The atonement is called a propitiation in Romans 3.25. And what is a propitiation? Propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away wrath. God satisfied His own wrath by sending His Son. In the person of His Son, God absorbed His own just anger towards our sin so that He could freely forgive us. Christ, who is God the Son incarnate, was an offering to God. God the Father accepted this offering. Notice in the ESV it says it was a a fragrant offering. It's literally a sweet smell. A sweet smell. The New American Standard translates it a fragrant aroma. The New King James, a a sweet-smelling aroma. And the idea is that the offering of Christ satisfied God. It was a, a pleasant smell in His nose. God is now propitiated. His wrath has been turned away, and now God can act propitiously towards us. God is propitious. That is, He is gracious and and merciful towards us. Here is good news to the sinner who has 
run to Christ for refuge, God's justice is satisfied. No more wrath remains for you to pay. If you are in Christ, Jesus paid it all. You are now clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. God no longer treats you as a sinner. Although you still sin and sin remains in your life, God treats you as He treats Christ because He treated Christ as He should have treated you. And even more, God not only justifies, to be justified means to be declared righteous, but we are declared righteous on the basis of the atonement through our union with Christ. But we are not only justified. God goes even further in our salvation. God takes an extra step. We are adopted now into His family. And so when we think about what God has done for us, we think of the atonement. And the atonement leads to another, even deeper blessing. And that is number two in, in subpoint number two in our outline. And that is adoption. Look at the text again. It says, therefore, chapter five, verse one, be imitators of God as beloved children. The fact that we are now children of God is the doctrine of adoption. We have been adopted into his family. And logically, adoption comes after justification. First, God declares us righteous through the atoning work of Christ, and then he adopts us as his children. In adoption, we see how amazing God's grace is because we could have been saved without being adopted. We, we could have been saved without adoption. It's one thing to be right with God. It's another thing entirely to be made one of his family, to become one of his children. In 1 John 3 and verse 1, John exclaims, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And so we are God's children. We are God's children now. Ephesians 1 and verse 5 says, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. God has predestined us for adoption as sons. He has adopted us and He brings us to Himself. To be predestined means that, that something was decided beforehand. And so God decided beforehand that He would adopt us as sons. And He brought us to Himself through our Lord Jesus Christ and He, he brought us to Himself not just as righteous, not just as clothed in a, a righteousness divine, but as actually His sons and His daughters. First John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. We have the right to become children of God. Adoption is very much like justification in the, in the sense that it comes from a, the legal terminology of the ancient world. Uh, to be adopted is a legal term. And to all who receive Him, to all those who believed, John 1.12 tells us, God gave the right or the authority or the power to become the children of God. 
And so if you are one who received Christ by faith, you were predestined to that glorious privilege to be a child of God. You have been made a child of God. Wow. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus, you all... In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians 3.26 Now listen now, God did not make you a son only to somehow unadopt you. You are God's child and God is a good father. If you go astray as a child of God, he will discipline you as a son and bring you back to himself. If you go astray into sin and rebellion and you go without discipline, you will show that you are never truly a child of God. God brought his children to himself while they were his enemies. Surely he will keep them when they are adopted into his family. And as children of God, we are also heirs of the world. And God will allow us to share the inheritance with Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Listen now. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And so the atonement and adoption show us what God has done. Our sins are covered. We are now beloved children. And so the question is for us this morning, then how should we respond to this exceeding good news? Some think that these truths will lead us headlong into sin. You know, if, if you can hear this and think, I'm forgiven now, I, I can freely sin with no worries, then you can know that with that kind of thinking, you are not saved. How else could we explain such a wicked, ungrateful response to God's grace? If you can think that people would experience this grace and know it and continue in sin, you're probably not saved yourself, or at least you're not very familiar with the, the grace of a regenerate heart. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, Paul said, the love of Christ controls us. The truly regenerate know the love of Christ and hear of the love of Christ and it compels us to live for Him. It motivates us to serve God. It moves us to love Christ, does it not? And so how should we respond? Well, Ephesians 5 and verse 1 again, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. And so this is secondly in our outline. Number two, we've seen here what God has done. Now let's see second, what we should do. Here's our response to the gospel. This is what we should do and and what should we do? How do we respond to such an amazing message of what God has done for us in Christ? Well, it's so clear in the text, isn't it? We should be imitators of God and we should walk in love. And when you see the glory of God and all His grace in our salvation, doesn't it make you want to be like Him? 
Doesn't it make you want to serve like Him when you see God sending His Son to suffer for sinners, for selfish, wicked people like you and I were before salvation? Doesn't it make you want to forsake your wicked and selfish ways? Doesn't it make you want to give of yourself for the benefit of others? Brothers and sisters, we are invited to be imitators of God. We are commanded to be imitators of God. You've likely heard it said before that that imitation is the highest form of flattery. And that kind of fits the situation here. Flattery is a sin, but we could substitute another word. Maybe we could say that imitation is the highest form of worship. Because when we imitate God, we honor Him. And when we imitate God, we glorify Him. And so let me suggest just a a few practical ways that we can imitate God. The verse just before our verse in Ephesians 4 and verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so we can imitate God in our forgiveness of others in our kindness towards others, in our tenderness towards others, just as God was tender and kind and forgiving towards us. Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so we can be like God in the way that we love our enemies and that we pray for those who persecute us just as God the Father sends His Son on the good and on the wicked so we can send our love and our prayers for the good and for the wicked. First Peter 1 and verse 15 says, As He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so we should be holy because God Himself is holy. We can imitate His holiness. And we could really do this with any attribute of God. Is God righteous? Well, we should be righteous. Is God good? We should be good. Is God just? We too should be just. Is God merciful? We should be merciful. Is He gracious? Then we should be gracious. Psalm 86 verse 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we too can imitate God in all of these things. We can be merciful and gracious. We can be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love there is God's loyal loving kindness. The the, the love of God that that causes Him to keep His promises to His people. And we too should be loyal and kind, that we should love and fulfill our word to those around us. Faithfulness there is is faithfulness and truth, the, the same word depending on how one looks at it. And so we too should be faithful in our service to God and our service to others and truthful in all that we say and do. And we could do this with almost any attribute of God. We should be like God in the way that Jesus as a man was like God. Jesus shows us what it looks like to imitate God. And of course, there's ways in which we cannot imitate God or we cannot imitate Christ as the God-man. He is God and He is man. But still, to the extent that we can, we should imitate God. 
Now note how our text says that uh, we should be imitators of God as beloved children. We should be imitators of God as beloved children. And, and this is really neat. This is um, uh, from, the, from the Greek thought, uh, a beloved child was an only child who received all the love of their parents. Their parents' love wasn't divided among many siblings, and so these children, these beloved children, received all of their parents' love, and in Greek thought, such a child would reciprocate that love back to his parents. Now, we might not agree with Greek thought on this. I I don't know what you think about an only child, and you can kind of talk about that amongst yourselves later. But when, still, Paul did what he did there is he took up this idea, this idea that was common in his day that, that the only child got all the attention. They received all the gifts. They received all the resources and all the love of their parents. And he applied it to us as God's children. And the idea is, is that God has blessed us with so much that we should respond with love to him just as children whose parents gave them everything would respond in love towards their parents and God being infinite can love all of his children with all of his fullness there is no diminishing of his resources as God spreads his love to all of his children there is no diminishing of his resources and his love and so each and every one of God's children is like his beloved child it's like we are his only child because he loves us with all of who he is with all of his infinite fullness Earlier in Ephesians, Paul said that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1.3. And so God has loved us so, therefore we should respond with loving, worshipful imitation of Him. And the primary way that Paul has in mind here that we should be imitators of God is given in verse 2. How should we imitate God? By walking in love, by imitating the God-man Jesus Christ. Love, as I said earlier, is seeking the highest benefit for the one loved. To love somebody means that you seek to do whatever you can at whatever cost to yourself for that person's greatest good. To love means we offer our lives as a sacrifice to God for the benefit of others. And what is the ultimate benefit? How can we truly love others? What's the, the greatest good that we can do for someone? Of course, God must be the greatest good. And therefore, to love must be a God-centered pursuit. Biblical love seeks to bring others into relationship with God. Biblical love is, is giving of ourselves for the sake of others so that their relationship with God, so that their greatest good can be a relationship with God. When I love you, I help you to know God and to see God. And if I am not loving you, that's when I bring you into sin or anything that is contrary to God. And so when we think of the love of God, the Son towards us in the atonement, and the love of God, the Father towards us in adoption, and we could even add the love of God, the Holy Spirit to us in regeneration, When we think of the love of the triune God towards us, it should motivate us to love one another. 1 John 4 and verse 10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. We have remembered what God has done for us, especially as an offering and a sacrifice to God on Good Friday. And we have seen what we should do in response. Now, most of what I've said so far assumes that you are already a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians was written to true believers. But if you are listening to me this morning, if you are here this morning (coughs) and you haven't come to Christ, you haven't believed in Him, if you are not born again, your first response should be to come to Christ. Jesus Christ died to save sinners, and if you will call on His name, He promises to save you. You too can be made righteous. You can have your many sins forgiven, but you must come to Jesus Christ. He alone can save, and He will welcome you, but only if you turn from sin and draw near to God through Him. Jesus died to save sinners, but He rose from the dead, and He is alive today. And if you are not saved, you must trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you. And if you are saved, if you've been hearing this message and you are a believer in Christ, then let His love for you move you to love others. Imitate God and walk in love. Amen. Well, Father, we just thank You for this time that we could come together and uh, meditate on the love of Christ towards us. Thank you for the great love of Jesus Christ, the greatest love that brought us to you, that even allowed us to be clothed in righteousness and adopted into your family. Thank you, Father, for your love, and we pray that you would help us to respond to it in ways that honor and glorify you. Help us to be imitators of you and to love one another. We ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.